and Rob McGregor welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper, ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the Mystical Underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Trish McGregor. And Rob McGregor. And our tech magician, John Posey. You can go to themysticalunderground.com where we make regular posts and find out about our books. Our most recent nonfiction book is Phenomena, Harnessing Your Psychic Abilities. Trish's latest novel is Skin Shifters, and Rob's latest novel is Tulpas. Our guest today is Katriona McGregor. She is the author of a new book that's just out this week. It's called Secrets of a Celtic Mystic. Sacred Earth Prophecy, her earlier books, Partnering partnering with Nature, The Wild Path to Reconnecting with the Earth, won a gold medal from the Nautilus Book Awards, which recognizes world-changing books that promote positive social change. In her books, Katriona explores the magic of nature and our precarious relationship with the outdoors uh, from the perspective perspective of a scientist, an environmental journalist, and nature guide. She treats us to astonishing stories of how nature heals and shows us the path to rewilding a revolution in consciousness and a reckoning with the feminine values of compassion, intuition, and planetary survival. Uh, Finally, Katriana has extensive experience in habitat management and species conservation and is leading a resilient forest initiative to applying to apply initiative and in, in innovative and bold solutions to forest and species management. She is a visionary bridge builder between nature and humankind and an intuitive mystic. Welcome, Katriana. Yeah, you made it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And it's a great to join you both again. Yeah. So tell us about the importance of trees in your life. Uh, I mean, as I'm reading the book, I I keep seeing more and more about trees and the significance in your life and the importance for everyone, actually. Yeah, trees have just been incredibly um, important and a main, main, um, I guess, a guide ally in my life in so many ways. So um, not too long ago, just a couple of years ago, I found an old box in the attic when we when we moved. And inside that box, my mother had kept one book that I wrote when I was six years old. <laughs> and it was about a tree. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> and it was about a tree that got burnt or, or people were trying to burn it. And this particular tree, I guess, was very magical and it managed to roll away. And um, as a young child, I used to sleep in trees. I used to sleep on branches and talk to trees and felt as if they talked to me. I believe they did talk to me because actually they told me things that nowadays we know is scientifically accurate. But back then, um, people would have thought, my goodness, that's impossible. And um, yeah, and then as a young adult and trying to get ahead in the world, like most people, I went into kind of a more traditional career and kind of uh, spent a lot of time inside in an office and lost touch with trees, but then had a very incredible experience with a tree, which brought me back to my childhood roots and my connection to them. But was it a synchronicity? Um, it was a secret. Well, it, it, I think it was the timing. I think, you Uh know, there are different phases in our life. There are different cycles when it's just the right moment for uh, an experience to be life altering. And I think the creator knows when those special moments arise and then presents these things to one, um, that, that can really, um, have a profound difference. Yeah, was that when the the tree yeah, was, go- was going to be uh, chopped down? Uh, that was uh, near your house there. Yes, yes. So that's yes, the, I remember that story. Tell yeah, that story. That's a great story. You want that again? Yeah. So, um, yeah, 
Yeah, so this is when, you know, I was a go-getter. I was, you know, practicing environmental law, making a good salary. I was also, you know, doing good work. I was protecting the environment. But, you know, the reality is I was on the computer a lot and in the office a lot and feeling kind of out of touch with, with the natural world. And um, I was coming home late one night uh, after work, quite late and very tired and uh, was walking to our home. At the time, I married and had had a young son. And um, as I came through an empty lot, which normally was really dark and hard to find your way, um, <clears throat> I'm carrying a heavy briefcase and kind of wandering in. And I noticed that the lot was all lit up. And I'm like, where is this light coming from? This is so strange. And I'm looking around for the light, but I'm just assuming that somebody put a light up somewhere. And I'm like, oh, this is great. I can see where my feet are going. <laughs> and, and then as I'm walking in the lot, I came up. There was one big, beautiful oak tree in the middle of the lot. And all of a sudden, much to my amazement <clears throat> and wonder, I realized that the tree was glowing. It, it looked like a moon. That's, that's the kind of light it had, kind of a glowy, bright light. And it almost felt warm, too, but maybe it was more a psychological thing. And I was so shocked by the vision. I thought I was hallucinating. So I ran into the I almost ran into the house, you know, and my heart was beating. And I thought, oh, my God, am I seeing things? <laughs> and I put everything down. And then I slowly opened the door and kind of peeked outside, kind of half hoping, you know, I, it would just be a normal dark lot that that used to be there. But sure enough, no, the tree was there. And it just had this beautiful glow. It was almost like if people could imagine the moon just gently uh. resting on the on the ground, what that would look like. So I went outside. I went right close to it and just stood there. And I have no idea how long it could have been a few minutes. It could have been an hour. I have no idea. I was just totally entranced by the tree. And I felt connected to it. I it almost felt as if my soul connected to the tr the, the soul of the tree. And then I eventually went back in and, and went to sleep, got up the next morning, um, didn't even think about the tree because I was in a whole different frame of mind, got my son ready for school. And then when I came back the next day after work and I came back a little bit earlier, so it was still, I think it was six or so, so it was still somewhat light out, um, had not given a second thought to the tree all day and came around the corner, started to walk through the empty lot and there on the ground, the tree had been not only chopped down, but, you know, when people come in and they make wood chips out of a tree, so uh, it was right. all scattered yeah. all around. And the, I, I was so upset. It was almost like, I know people may think it's a little crazy, but it's almost like if you could imagine a human body being strewn around on the mm -hmm. ground or something, because I had communed with this tree at such a deep level. And it was almost like this two universes collided in my mind because, you know, when we operate in the day-to-day -day profane world, we really have to kind of sometimes set aside that more mystical, uh, mystical understanding of the sacred. And here before me, I was being presented with the knowledge of the sacredness of the tree and then the knowledge of what had happened in our, in our world. Wow. And, um, I was dev completely devastated. I was so upset. But also from that experience, I felt the tree almost as if its voice speaking to me, as if it was saying, we, you know, I was showing you that I am more than bark and limbs uh -huh. and leaves. And so mm. are you. Yeah. And so there was a hopefulness there, too. Wow. Hmm. That's pretty impressive. I think I would have been hysterical. <laughs> I know. <laughs> And, and so that was the beginning of the end of that career path for me, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. more traditional environmental law career. And that was the beginning of me um, taking people out into nature, doing uh -huh. spiritual quests and vision quests and so forth. Didn't you have a similar experience with a tree after your, um, after your father died? I did. In fact, you know, looking back, there are these moments, and I'm sure all your listeners have had experiences like this, too. There are these, these threads. You know, our life is threaded and woven together. And then every once in a while, there's like a beautiful bead that's the same color or same hue or same mm -hmm. frequency. And that's almost like what our lives are like. So when, I, when my father died, 
um, and I was 12 years old. And uh, I was raised in a completely non-religious family. Um, in fact, not only were that were my parents non-religious, but they both had been involved in uh, World War II. They came from Britain. <clears throat> my father had been in the, um, <clears throat> was a physician in the Navy. And my mom, uh, you know, it was a scary time. And, and um, they always felt that religions often caused wars or ca mm -hmm. caused people to turn against each other because of different beliefs. So I was raised in a household that was very non-religious uh, but unfortunately, also non-spiritual in, in many mm. ways. So um, we didn't really talk about things uh, like that. And I would come running home and, you know, talk about the weird mystical things that were happening with me and was kind of said, ah, I don't know about that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so um, so having being raised in that kind of environment after my father died, I didn't really have solace through um, any kind of religion or way uh -huh. to connect. And I went uh, one morning, woke up very early, very upset, and went to the woods, which has always been my place of solace. Um, I'll tell you a little bit of something, something funny about that in a moment, but um, went to the woods and um, the trees spoke to me there. I got into a very meditative, almost trance-like state. Um, as a kid, I was kind of a weird kid. I could sit for hours <laughs> quietly just watching something or just sitting by a tree. And, and that's how I learned about things. So I was in kind of that kind of mode. And um, the trees explained to me that my father, while he wasn't physically here, he was home and he was happy and he was safe. And mm. they explained it to me and I felt it in, in such an mm. amazing, you know, amazing way. But um yeah, so trees have always been, been a big part of now, my you know, life. You know, Catriona, this is <clears throat> the second time in two days that somebody has talked about communing with trees. First, it was in this coincidence circle I belong to, yeah. and the man who's in charge of it, Bernard Bateman, said, well, I, ha I have to um, get going. I'm going out into the forest to talk to trees. <laughs> and now here you are. <laughs> I thought, wow, I didn't even know he did this, you know. Yeah. And uh, he says, I sing to them, too. <laughs> So, and here you are. <laughs> yes, they love to be sung to. You know, often if I'm hiking now, I have to admit I don't do it in public. But <laughs> if I'm hiking on my own, because I have a horrible voice. <laughs> but if I'm hiking on my own, I will sometimes sing. You know, oh, it's a beautiful day. I won't bother you with my song. But, uh, but yeah, they, they love it. And actually, there have been studies now looking at the scientific aspect. Because, you know, I'm half mystic, half scientist. And so I do like to look at scientific validation for the experiences that I have so that everyone can understand that this, these are real, they're not uh, fictional accounts. Right. And uh, so there's, there was a study done by scientists in North Korea, and they found that plants grow stronger and um, taller when they uh, hear birdsong or they heard, hear certain music that is reminiscent of tones and uh -huh. harmonies of birdsong. And so this is something that's been picked up in many other studies around the world now. So, so we now know that, yes, trees and plants can hear in their own way. Ah, it sounds like the work that Emoto did with uh, water. Right, similar. Well, water is a magical substance when you think about it. It's really, I, I just am so in love with water. And I think that's because of the way trees have explained water to me, even from a, as a young child. Um, water can be in so many different forms. It's one of the only substances. It can be a gas or a mm -hmm. solid or a liquid. And water can retain memory. And so um, Emoto found that you could have certain words mm -hmm. and bless water, and the water would absorb those good words and uh -huh. so forth and actually have more positive, have more beautiful crystal, crystalline structure. And again, if you had bad words, you know, <laughs> abrasive, abrasive sound, the uh -huh. water reflects that. So, so the water is, is kind of a memory holder and there's something about that liquidness, you know, and, and, and I, I could go on for hours about water, but it's just a beautiful, beautiful substance. Well here, and now look at the, um, 
what happened in Houston, no water, you know, and or dirty mm-hmm. water. The, the symbolism for that is really kind of depressing. <laughs> it is. Well, you know, what happens, too, is when you damage the water, uh, it's not it loses its capabilities. It's just like mm-hmm. a human being that's ill or sick. And so it, it lo- loses its ca- uh, capabilities. And um, so this is happening all around the world. The water's getting damaged, mm-hmm. um, whether it's the oceans or, that are becoming acidic um, or, you know, direct pollution or even, you know, issues with bacteria now growing in water because the temperatures are too high. Um, so these things are occurring. And there are ways that we can renew our relationship with water and purify water. We can do that by um, having it move in a certain way, having it um, making sure that if it's we're putting it in pipes, that that there's a more Mm. natural flow and so forth. So there are ways that we can renew it. We can clean water. Um, There's something called one of my favorite experiences. was going, actually, I don't know if you you guys have been there to the Audubon Sanctuary at Corkscrew Swamp, swamp in Florida. Mm, where is it? Cor- uh, I can't remember the town, mm. but it's one of Audubon's oldest uh, sanctuaries. Mm, okay. And I was there, oh boy, maybe 25 years ago. And it was a fascinating trip because they're in a very, you know, Florida can be very swampy in certain areas. Yeah. And this sanctuary, I think, just was uh, primarily only had one small area of dry land and then had boardwalks that you would walk mm. through above the water, which was really a great place to go. But they realized that their um, attendance went up dramatically and they had to build another uh, sewage plant. And they really didn't have room to do it. And so they contacted one of my favorite uh, scientists and inventors. His name is John Todd, T-O-D-D. And he invented what's called the living machine. And Mm. he figured out a way to purify water and not only make it clean, but make it potable, which means makes it drinkable. Um, And the way that they did it is they um, first they have, you know, kind of a filtering system from the from the sewage. But then they have plants that absorb uh, any heavy metals or toxins. And then it goes into another um, kind of funnel of different types of plants. And then it goes when it's a little bit cleaner, then it's uh, presented with like snails and microbes and, you know, certain bacteria that also purifies the water. And um, the very last step is they have this great, big, beautiful, clear glass tube that's about eight feet tall and maybe three feet diameter. And the water goes up and it sits in this tube and the warm rays of the sun Uh. finalize the purification. Uh. And um, not only was putting in the living machine um, less expensive than a traditional sewage system, Mm -hmm but it purified the water to make it potable and it became one of the major attractions or educational points at the, uh, uh, so, you know, it was kind of a win-win. The only problem with it, ironically, is that it was such a new design that the local EPA didn't want to um, allow it at first. You know, they had, you know, there's like, where's your traditional, you know, septic system? We We have to fit in the box. And uh, but anyhow, they managed to get it through. It took a little bit of work. And um, and also, as far as maintenance, the maintenance <clears> on <throat> it is much less than a traditional machine. So it, it's really quite fascinating what uh, one can do. That uh, corkscrew swamp, that's uh, across the yes, state. We're, we're on the southeast and uh, that's sort of the southwest coast of Florida in, near Naples. So it's ah, interesting okay. to visit yeah. sometime. Yeah, would be. I'd like to go back to uh, plants again uh, from water. Um, I've often wondered how ancient uh, people figured out the healing properties of plants with such accuracy regarding what illnesses the plants uh, would serve to cure. And in your book, you mentioned Dr. Edward Bach uh, and how he could hold a leaf or a root of a plant and intuitively know what illnesses it could cure. Uh, can you talk about uh, Dr. Bach and how he saw illnesses related to our uh, emotional states? 
Yes, yes. He he was an amazing man, and he was a full, <coughs> you know, medical doctor. And he got, you know, a little fed up. He, he felt that, wow, you know, we're, um, you know, giving pills and whatnot, but we're not addressing the underlying issues because he realized that some of the people that were ill, you know, had emotional things happening in their life or, you know, different stresses. And so he closed his practice. Um, I don't know whether it was London or Edinburgh. I think he might, might have been in, um, or maybe it was Wales. But he ended up going into the countryside and, you know, getting, he was a very spiritually minded person. And he would pick up a leaf of the plant. He was hiking all throughout Wales. And Wales is one of those countries, wonderful countries where you can hike anywhere. Um, you're just allowed kind of free, free privilege to, to go as you... So Dr. Spock was able to absorb uh, information of how the plant could heal an underlying condition. So, for example, an emotional state of depression, an emotional state of stress, an emotional state of anxiety, or all the different qualities. Um, and by taking the, the plant, um, this could actually prevent somebody from getting physically ill. And so he has uh, medicinal herbs, and he's one of the most uh, widely used medicinal herb herbal treatments. Um, just about every health food store carries mm. uh, box herbal treatments. Yeah. yeah, he was kind of pushed out of the medical establishment, wasn't he, because of his, un, you know, his eccentric, <laughs> his eccentric approach? Yes, and, and it's not just eccentrics, it's that this these things, um, you know, things that we find in nature to heal us don't cost very much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. the, the pharmaceutical companies don't make much money. So unfortunately, Bach and many, many, many other alternative healers, um, you know, do not uh, fare well um, when they come up against big, huge, you know, pharmaceutical companies yeah. and even many of the agencies that certify people. And what a lot of people don't understand, too, I cover this in the book a little bit, is that when the uh, traditional medical industry took off and the pharma, you know, pharmacies pharma. and so forth, um, at the exact same time is when they were doing the witch hunts. And the correlation here is yeah. that uh, at that time, many of the women, of course, there were a lot of ex exceptional male healers too, but there were probably more uh, female uh, healers and uh, medicine women, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they would really be the ones that the villagers would look to when anyone fell ill, and they would use herbal remedies that they would find in their local community. And often people were paid, um, not always in cash, but sometimes, you know, by, with a cow or a chicken right, right, or, right. you know, something. And uh, so it was kind of like a community, more of a community supporting, networking, healing kind of relationship. And then <clears throat> around the time that the... Um, this all happened with the the witch hunts, and of course, saying there are witches. Of course, we all know there there were no, <laughs> there were no witches. Um, the uh, that's when the um, traditional medical industry took off, and that's when they created a um, licensing. How convenient. Uh, yeah, they created a licensing, <laughs> yeah. and so you could not practice medicine unless you were licensed. And of course, when that first started, no women were allowed to be uh -huh. licensed. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of how that all got started. Yeah. It's interesting that the pharmaceuticals send a biologist to the Amazon to come back with these plants that have healing properties, but then what they do is they turn it into a chemical process. <laughs> As a as a pill for something that's uh, not the not the direct uh, product, uh, but a, a chemical variant. Of yes, that. and then what's happening is you're losing the soul of mm -hmm. the plant. Yeah. And uh, for anyone who's who's read the Don Juan books, um, Carlos Castaneda, and so forth, um, you know, very familiar with how he needed to connect to and have a relationship with the plant before being helped by it. 
And that's what I have found as well um, with my interaction with the trees and the land and, and the plants. I found that you really have to be open, you have to be respectful, and you have to be still and listen and quiet. And then then these these beautiful beings can communicate and can let you know. Mm. And it's not just me, it's, it's for everybody. Everybody has this possibility. And um, it gets more challenging, not just because of the individual. You know, some people say, oh, I'm just not, you know, spiritual. I just don't uh -huh. have that. <clears throat> but we live in a society that bombards us with information, keeps us on computers, um, you know, ke keeps us in a certain medical state and so forth. And so we live in a society that that is going against the grain. And we mm -hmm. kind of have to really be be warriors against it. I talk about it in the book. I talk about human beings being over-domesticated, that today we've been domesticated by our society. And because of that, we've lost some of the beautiful freedoms and health and kind of that wild soul that, that one can have by being connected to the natural yeah. world. Well, you know, regardless of what you watch at night, when there's a commercial, it's invariably a pharma commercial. Got to try this drug. Especially related to the news. Uh, yeah. It seems that uh, it's one one after another. And, you know, it's always showing these happy people. But, uh, <laughs> you know, where are these happy people who <laughs> are taking all these drugs in real life? <laughs> I know. I know. And there's a huge connection. You know, these, these supposedly happy people. And, you know, they're being told to purchase these drugs. And, and they're also being told to purchase thousands of other items, you know, mm -hmm. the native peoples that I've worked with. I work with native um, Alaskans. I've worked with native, native people in Russia, the Evink, the reindeer people. And um, if you go into their homes, they own very few items. But those items are beautiful items. They're handcrafted. They may be handed down through their families. Um, you know, they'll have a beautiful cloak, perhaps, or a beautiful mm. um, weaving or carving. And, um, you know, they really believe that there's this connection that a person has to things. And, you know, when everything is manufactured, whether it's by a pharmacy or by some big factory, and then you go out, you purchase that product, and, and nowadays people have thousands and thousands of, of, I would say useless, but you know thousands of things in their homes, often uh, even having to get a separate um, you know, rental to, to stick these things mm -hmm. in. Yeah. And they actually, it's, ha it's actually bad for our health because you're piling in objects that are what I call non-sacred or almost soulless objects. Mm -hmm. um, so it is it is definitely a, a dilemma for our time. Yeah, we live in a consumer society, that's for sure. Uh, yes. T tell us about the experiment that you did with uh, mistletoe at a dousing convention. I found <laughs> that fascinating. I love that. I love doing things like that with people because, um, and this is why I do the nature quest and the vision quest, because I have found from experience and from working with people from many different countries, uh, many different experiences, whether they've camped all their life or this is the very first time they're doing a vision quest, that everyone has the ability to connect at this deep deep, profound level with the natural world. So at this dowsing convention, I gathered up some mistletoe and there are quite a few hundred people in the audience. So I had to get a lot of mistletoe leaves. And, uh, but there, luckily there was a lot of mistletoe in the area. And I only take, I never take the whole plant, by the way. Uh, I follow my, my, uh, by uh, for forefathers not to destroy things. But um, I had each person hold uh, a little bit piece of leaf or leaf in their hand. And then we did a meditation because again, it's important for humans to get into that um, altered state, at, which is the mm -hmm. alpha state or the, that certain brainwave state mm -hmm. where you're very mm -hmm. relaxed, but still alert. And we got into that, that state of being and then I asked everyone uh, to tune into the plant in their hand, into the leaf, and ask them if they could tell me a little bit about it. Like, what, what could it do? Maybe what it, you know. Uh, and They, it they was, didn't know what plant they had, did they? 
they had no idea what plant it was. I just put this little leaf in their hand and said, just hold this carefully and, and keep it. Most people had it in their right hand. Uh, some people who are left-handed put it in their left hand. And um, yeah, they just sat, sat with the leaf. They probably were holding it for 20 to 30 minutes. And it was amazing how well, how many people understood the medicinal qualities, huh. the magical qualities of this plant. It was almost like I was hearing my ancient ancestors, the ancient Celts or Picts who, who saw this plant as, as a sacred plant, hmm. uh, talking through them today because we all have that ability. What, what is the medicinal quality for mistletoe? The, medi the medicinal quality, well, it's just, there's so many quality aspects. It's called, it's considered an all-heal plant mm. and it was used as a poultice it was also used very spare, sparingly actually in consumption but very sparingly um, and it was also used just by having it um, harvested at uh. a certain time during a certain moon time and then in a certain way it had to be harvested very carefully and then even just having it in the home uh, brought uh, health, brought uh, good mm. vibrations because you know everything <clears throat> is a frequency and has has vibrational qualities. Isn't mm. it isn't it used in Europe as a cancer cure as well? It is. It's so nowadays it's used in Europe um, because they found that it really um, obstructs cancer, and you know cancer is one of those diseases. So it's almost like your your cells have totally gone in the wrong direction and that's the beauty of mistletoe it's this all heal it's like bringing your frequency your vibration back to health and to wholeness would it work on covid do you think <laughs> i don't know the answer to that question yeah it'd be yeah. interesting if somebody you know was doing research in that area I, you know, and today, and unfortunately, I believe that COVID is partly man-made. Mm -hmm. um, I do not have a theory of how it got into um, our, you know, the, <laughs> the pandemic state. Mm -hmm. But I do know for a fact that they do experiment with diseases. And I know for a fact that they have been experimenting with SARS. They've been experimenting with Lyme's disease. Um, so all these kinds of diseases, you know, they experiment uh, for research. But with Lyme's disease, there's actual evidence that they um, experimented on that as a military weapon. And they even thought about dropping um, Lyme disease ticks on the enemy soldiers because they understood. But the way they made that disease for Lyme disease, for example, so virulent and why if people get ill with it, it, it affects almost every part of your body is because they played around with it. You know, they made mm. it more virulent. So the reason I'm bringing that up is um, I do believe that COVID has some uh, artificially um, created aspects of it. Mm -hmm. Although I don't think that somebody released it intentionally, I hope. Uh -huh. um, but um, so therefore the natural world, um, you know, was created in, in a different way. And when human beings force things together that not, are not supposed to be together, it's harder for the natural world to address that. Yeah, that makes sense. And it seems that COVID uh, is evolving very rapidly. It doesn't Mutating. live long, so it <laughs> mutates uh, uh, very quickly. So now we have all these variants out there. Yes. And, you know, this is what they do in the lab is when they're researching these diseases, they're often trying to get them to mutate because what they do, and, you know, this is, this can be factually uh, proven. Anyone can go and look at these medical briefs and patents and so forth. And they, what they will often do in labs is they will take a disease from an animal um, and they'll see if it can be transferred to a different species. Mm -hmm. um, and it almost uh, does create a mutation in the original um, disease to have this occur, uh, or it certainly um, provides a foundational step for the disease to make that jump. Mm. Well, that's, but what do you, um, you know, just in terms of human consciousness, what do you think the effect is of this pandemic? Is it triggering a shift to a higher evolution, <laughs> a higher state? <laughs> 
I wish that was the case. I don't believe so. I be, I believe in if anything, it's um, you know, it's 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 unfortunately a ne- well. Here's the thing: the the you know, getting the disease itself, um, you know, is is harming the the physical body. Of course, right. you're building up ant- antibodies and and so forth. But I would say a benefit of it is that we are connecting as a global community, uh-huh. and this is something that has affected the entire world. And I think this is one of the biggest things that has really made everybody realize that we're all connected. Right. And. Um, so that is really tremendous that this this has happened. And I think, too, that people are beginning to understand that there's some connection to the breakdown of the natural world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only the direct breakdown that everybody knows about, you know, global warming, pollution, right. but the fact that, hey, we are removed from nature. We're not in our healing place. We are in offices. We're on computers. We're, you know, right. in, in these kinds of, uh, quote, unquote, kind of unnatural uh, conditions. And, uh, so we are, uh, becoming less healthy. Yeah. So the sacred earth uh, prophecy that you write about in your book is uh, not exactly an uplifting one, uh, for humankind, <laughs> but it, it does see us surviving at least, which is good news. But, uh, can you talk about the prophecy and also how the prophecy came to you? Yeah. So the prophecy, so the good news is I, I really, um, have seen and experienced that humankind survives. So I think that's a wonderful thing. And I, and I, and I'll talk a little bit more about how, how we live. Um, but we do go through this time of great changes at, which are already upon us in a major way. And I guess today, you know, you mentioned Texans. Uh-huh. So the Texans are really experiencing the great changes. Of course, many of them, I believe it was 2013 when half a million of their native trees died. I was flew mm-hmm. into the state and nothing like that had ever happened in anybody's memory that, you know, you lose native trees that are used to heat and used to drought, but not this kind of heat and drought. Yeah. And now they're experiencing this, this ice. So, so we're clearly in time of great changes. That's why we have the pandemic. That's why the oceans are acidic. Uh, that's why we're losing all these species. And um, those like me who spend time outside or work with species, it's in our faces, like right in front of us all the time. <laughs> I had this one favorite hiking trail I used to go to with a beautiful, beautiful oak tree. And I went there for 20 years or so, one of the main places I hiked. And this oak tree stood on its own, and there was a trail that would go by it just 10 or 12 feet. And over the years, that trail became more and more used, and I would see you know, people there, repeat <coughs> people coming back. And over the years, I noticed the health of the tree uh, going lower and lower and lower and getting kind mm. of, um, you know, looking ill, getting more parasitic uh, things happening to it. And I remember saying, you know, every time I would pass it, I would be a little heart more heartbroken and, you know, oh, my God, the tree is getting ill. And um, I would say to people, look at the poor oak, you know, somebody that I knew came every day or came a lot. And they're like, what, what, where, where? <laughs> <laughs> the tree you walk by every day when you walk um, so yeah, so, so there's a little bit of that that lack of connection. But um, with the with the where we're going to end up is that we really will connect to the natural world and we'll have an understanding of that sacred um, connection that human beings have, trees have, the planet, the species. But it'll be a very changed world because we will have lost a lot. We'll have lost a lot of species. Those, of course, take thousands of years to, to for new species to to evolve. And um, so it so it is a time that we're in of great changes. Many people see it and feel it daily, and the rest will all. Everyone on the planet will experience and understand the changes. And unfortunately, some people just need a little pinprick to get it. And some people need a sledgehammer to get um, it. <laughs> so true. Texas right now is getting a sledgehammer, I think. <laughs> right. But, um, that also yeah. shows that, that it's not just nature that's breaking down as a result of man, but actually man's actions against man. Right. That the infrastructure. 
is part of it, like yeah. with the infrastructure. Uh, not also, they got like, Hurricane Harvey, remember? Did it right. dump three days yeah. of rain on Houston? And the, uh, not too long ago, there was an attempt, I think it was by Russia, to invade the water system. Uh, and I can't remember where it was, but uh, they were like three days away from losing the whole water system in this city. Uh, I may not have the details of that accurate, but there there was a, an, uh, an attempt by a foreign country to affect water. And what we're seeing now in Houston and, and throughout uh, Texas, actually, half the people have to boil or on a boil their water um, order if they even have water. So it shows the importance of water and how, you know, if somebody could, you know, it's, it's not just b bombing another country, but affecting the, uh, the, the life source of water, for one thing. Yeah, yeah, no, this is so true. And all these things have been happening and increasing. And and actually, you're right. Texas has really gotten um, a, a brunt of a lot of these yeah, um, you know, changes. Um, one of the things you write about the connection between the debasement of nature and the debasement of women. Can you talk about that? Yes, well, there's always been, and, you know, the term of art for this is ecofeminism, and mm -hmm. that was, um, you know, kind of a, a movement or, uh, you know, thought that, that has been around for over 50 years or so. But essentially, it's just saying that, um, you know, I think the big picture is that uh, the yin and the yang of the world, that the world is out of balance right. and that there's more yang, there's more of that what I call active energy versus the more passive the uh, energy or the, the mass, more masculine versus feminine um, energy. And when you have an out of balance world, <clears throat> so for example, every single motor on a boat, on a plane, uh, in your car, it uses what is known as explosive energy. And um, this explosive energy, you know, we are vi vibrational. So right now I'm kind of looking more at the vibrational yeah. aspects. And of course, um, the explosive energy to get it to run is also very polluting, you know, the oil, the gas, the spills and, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, there are ways of producing energy that are more yin, uh, which is more passive energy. So, you know, we see that in solar, the beautiful way it's called biomimicry. We, right. we looked at a leaf of a plant and we thought, my God, it's getting all its life energy just through its leaves holding, you know, could you imagine holding your hands out and, oh, I just had breakfast. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, um, so, um, you know, that is, that is definitely a distinctive change, um, you know, that, that is happening. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, too, that <clears throat> because a study just came out two and a half years ago, they couldn't understand why solar cells are only like 38 percent or 39 percent effective, which means that when a photon or a piece of sunlight hits the panel, um, the majority of those bounce right off. Only about 38 percent actually hit in a spot that becomes energy. However, with plants, they're almost over 90% effective huh. at having the photons. And it doesn't make sense. Like if you look at it mathematically or in a linear sense, it, it shouldn't happen that way. It's an, it's an impossibility. So this team, uh, British UK team, um, discovered they were really trying to research this. And they found out that when plants are doing photosynthesis, they're in a sense, they're singing for the light. They're wow. changing their frequency and they're guiding the photon. So anyone who's flown on a plane and, you know, you see those guys with the orange sticky things that kind of wave the plane in, right. like, come in here, you go. Mm -hmm. So that's what the plant is doing. It's singing and mm. it has a certain frequency and it's guiding the photons into the correct spots where it can become used as a life energy. So so plants are really, really pretty amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> Hmm. Did, were they able to record this sound? They What they did is they put in, and I, I don't understand it exactly, but they say that they, it's proof of um, the plants using quantum physics. Hmm. And that is one of the methodologies um, that they use. There's a couple of other really uh, freaky, magical, yeah. bizarre things that they do. But um, the way they did it is they put dye in the plant leaf and they somehow you know and i don't understand everything about it but i can send you the study it's I'd fascinating love to see that yeah 
it's yeah, fascinating. fascinating. Hmm. Tatiana, you you talk about uh, the need to rewild ourselves. Uh, tell us about that uh, that term, rewild. Uh, yeah, so we really have been domesticated in a really bad way. I mean, it, it's I felt so sorry for myself and so many others growing <laughs> up in our society. Um, you know, I've met like the Kogi elders, indigenous people, and, you know, their lives are they just are so, seem so much richer in so many ways. But um, so, you know, we're called consumers. And what a horrible thing to be called. You know, we are <laughs> sacred beings. And to be titled uh, something just about buying or eating, I mean, how obscene, how degrading. Secret consumers. <laughs> yeah, secret. I mean, it's really, it's, it's an obscenity, you know, to have humanity, um, you know, just think of all the ads and all of the written materials. And if you have any rights, it's not as a sacred human being. You have a consumer right. To get, <laughs> so it's like, oh. Sacred um, consumer, I love it. Yeah, we're so, you know, here we are, these consumers. And then, you know, at, at an early age, you're taught to sit at a desk in a classroom, which mm -hmm. I feel really bad for, especially for the young boys. I, I raised a, a son. And that's so unnatural <laughs> you know, to sit in a classroom versus run around outside. Um, so we've really been, you know, seriously domesticated. And um, and then if you look at professions, now the, the world is changing. This is a really good thing, actually, that the computers have done. You know, uh -huh. computers, you know, a computer is a tool. The Internet is a tool. It can be beautifully used. But if you're on it eight hours a day, well, then it's your master. It's not your tool anymore. But now with the computers, people can work more creatively and more independently. But for many, many years, people during the industrialization were funneled into factories and working for industry. And just think about all that captured, creative, wild, uh, fantastic ideas that these individuals may have had, um, you know, of the different things they might have applied themselves to. And yet there they find themselves working 10 or 12 hours a day, right. you know, my coal or, you know, putting a little widget in a box in a factory. <laughs> and, yeah, so those, and those so ideals things, sort of died at the desk or in the factory. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's almost like a monoculture uh -huh. uh, of work and it's capturing the wild creative spirit of humankind. So, so there's so many ways that we have been overly domesticated, but the good news, like the Mustang, is we can rewild ourselves. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that is. Uh, so this prophecy of yours, it seems like uh, it actually might be being pushed forward more rapidly by the resistance, uh, there, because there's a great resistance to change that I thought would be overcome by now, but it seems to almost to be growing, the uh, resistance to change related uh, to the environment. Uh, for example, as soon as this uh, disaster happened in uh, Texas, the governor said, well, it's... Uh, it's the Green it, New Deal. It, yeah, the Green New Deal. It's uh, windmills froze froze up. And actually, the windmills are only 10% of the energy, plus they, they hadn't uh, winterized them. <laughs> and there's windmills in Antarctic and uh, northern in, the, uh, in Canada and Norway <laughs> that are working fine in the winter. And yeah, so, they're working beautifully. Yeah. But all the paradigms never die easily. That's what it is. They do not die easily. And you know the poem, Rage, Rage Against mm -hmm. the Dying of the Light? Right. Well, that's yeah. what the oil company is doing right now. They are raging, raging against the dying of the light. These are dinosaur companies. They're going down. Um, but they're not going to go down happily and or unfortunately or quietly. <laughs> and unfortunately, because of the power of these companies, you know, the, the budgets of these companies are bigger than than a lot of countries budgets. I mean, they're yeah. huge. Um, and they're the ones that, uh, you know, back in the 70s or 80s. 
the majority of people were on board that global warming was happening, that humankind was doing it. And then Exxon and all these oil companies hired all these marketing firms and got everybody all confused and paid lots of money to to legislators. And then, you know, we passed the the law that allowed, uh, you know, corporations to be people to pay up politicians. I'm like, uh uh-uh. So, um, yeah, but this is all going to change. And my hope is that the the one thing we, we don't know is in the raging of the dying of the light, how much damage will they do? How long will they, they go right. with it? And how, how many people will suffer um, before they give it up? But it, it, it will end. It will well, end. They're not going to give it up willingly. I mean, what's going to have to happen? happen is uh, more car companies like GM will just say, okay, it's we're all going to be electrical by whatever the date was, yeah. 2025. And the crazy thing is they're making great profits uh, in this disaster, too. There was one uh, executive uh, was uh, recorded as saying, this has been uh, this has been a great week for us. Yeah, yeah that's, that's just uh, uh, horrible. It's, it's a backward. crime. Yeah. It's a crime, you know, and and at some point we'll we'll understand that that it's a crime against you know humanity and and the planet. It's not just humanity, but the entire planet. Um, I believe the solution is, and I talk about this in the book a little bit. And part of this is from practicing law, you know, for for years <clears> and dealing, you know, working my way around regulations and laws and you know how all of that, how how people govern themselves. And I think one of the biggest disasters <clears throat> and biggest problems, but is the creation of the corporation. Mm-hmm. So the corporation, um, you know, it has nothing within the corporate charter. It doesn't have anything about, you know, that anything that's done should be in service to humanity or the planet. Right. <laughs> it's all about making a short-term profit for the trustees. So, so it's demanded to grow at a huge rate. Uh, without any care or concern about people or the planet. And so in a way, we've created a monster. And the indigenous people have this wonderful story. Um, They're great storytellers that often have a moral tale. And their story is about Amik, the young hunter, who Mm -hmm. goes off. uh, He's an Alaskan native. And he goes off on his first hunt on his own from his grandmother's house. And he, this can be a very long story, so I'm going to cut it really short. But it's told properly. It can go on for an hour. Uh, so I'm cutting it real short. But Amit leaves his home. And their culture believes that, you know, you bring back uh, what you catch or what you gather uh-huh. for the rest of the community. And he goes off and he gets so excited that he ends up eating everything. You know, he finds little bird's egg, he eats those, he goes to a river, he catches little minnows, he eats all of those, you know, on and on and on. And he's eating more and more and his appetite grows and grows and grows because everything's so good and he's on his own, he can do whatever he wants. And then he finally ends up at the coast and there's a big, huge whale. He's already eaten several walruses. Of course, you know, that's a story. And he catches the whale, he eats the whale, and then all of a sudden he gets homesick and he, he doesn't feel too well. And he starts, heading, he starts heading home and grandmother hears these big thumpy footprints. It sounds like there's a, you know, an earthquake coming and she's like, oh no, something has gone wrong with Amek on his first hunt. And a great big monstrous Amek that's taller than the tallest trees and fatter and bigger than the widest plain, you know, comes marching up uh, to the house and he looks down and there's his little tiny grandmother and a little tiny house. He's like, Oh my God, you know, I can't, all this remorse comes cause it's, I can't fit in my home anymore. <laughs> I can't go home. And the grandmother who's a shaman was sewing with her whale needle and she holds up her needle and she says, Amic, you know, she used to yell really loud cause he's way up there. Amic, you have to go through the eye of this needle. And Amic <laughs> is like, whoa, you know, how am I going to do that? But he did trust his grandmother. So that was his saving grace. He trusted his grandmother. He said, okay, he willed himself to go through the eye of the needle. And through magically, he shrinks down, he swirls around like a whirlwind, goes through the eye of the needle, 
all of everything he ate is brought back whole, ends up back where it belongs. Huh. The whale's back in the ocean. The little <laughs> eggs are back in their nest. And he's totally redeemed. And he realizes that his greed and avarice and over, you know, whatever. Right. But today yeah. our, our corporations are like omics. Right. We've made yeah, sure. crazy exactly. omics. Yeah. And so Large what we need it. is we need to kill corporations and we need to only allow what are called nonprofit corporations. And mm -hmm. if you read nonprofit charters, you can only become a corporation if you're doing service to humanity or the planet. You cannot, uh -huh. it's not just about making a profit. Right. Yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, <laughs> that is. You have a chapter called Spirals. It's a symbol that we see a lot in uh, nature and uh, also in ancient wall paintings, petroglyphs, um, and it's seen in nature in tiny shells and also the spiral galaxy all the way up there. And so what do you think is the significance of spirals? So the spiral, again, talking about magic, if there's magic in the world, the spiral is the foundation of it. Mm -hmm. And the spiral is the foundation of everything we know. It's the foundation of the material world, the invisible world. The smallest things that make up the material world, the reason that matter it becomes created is through movement. Through movement, and that movement is the spiral. Huh. And so... People seeing the spiral, the spiral is both a movement and a shape. And you can often see the spiral shape in the growth of a tree, for example. If you look closely, often trees and plants grow up in a spiral. And of course, naturally, uh, moving water loves to move in a spiral. And that's how it becomes very healing and, and health-giving. So the spiral, um, all ancient peoples understood this because they were connected to the universe, to the cosmos, the divine mother. And they understood the spiral. Um, who was it? T.S. Eliot that said, it's the dance. All there is is the dance. Right. And the spiral is the dance. Hmm. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. It's just one more thing. We're coming to the end of our hour. And I just want to, one more uh, topic here I'd like to talk to you about, about the Kogi Indians of the Sierra Nevada of Santa Marta Mountains. Um, we were there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, back in the 80s, we led adventure tours to South America, and we were uh, the, the first group of outsiders, foreigners, to uh, bring uh, people from outside of uh, Colombia to the lost city of the Sierra Nevada, Santa Marta Mountains, and uh, the, and the Kogi Indians were up up above uh, the lost city. This was the Tirona city, and the, the Kogis were descendants of the Tirona. Uh, in fact, they they speak a language of uh, the Tirona Indians, uh, and they're really fascinating people. Uh, the the men are weavers, and the weaving is a sacred. Uh, a process, and they believe that they're the younger brothers, and we're the, or they're the older brothers, and we're the the industrialized uh, people of the world are the younger brothers that are messing things up with their helicopters and in uh, factories, and um, they're praying every day in the morning uh, about you know making sure the sun comes up. Uh, and so you had an experience where you met uh, a couple. The mama is the, the name of the, the lead uh, shaman of the, uh, there's a number of uh, mamas that uh, exist in the, within the, the Kogis, but the, those are the spiritual leaders. And uh, so I'd like to hear about uh, your experience with the Kogis. Yeah, they're really <clears throat> wonderful, wonderful people and a wonderful example of how humanity can coexist in harmony, peace, and beauty on the planet. I met the the mama, who is a spiritual leader, and and then also the political leader because they co-lead. They they see both both aspects, the manifest world and the invisible, um, to be of equal importance. So they're always there uh, making decisions together. And <clears throat> I met them in California quite a few years ago with um, a small group of people. They were in the country for a short time, and they had beautiful white cloth um, uh, <clears throat> clothing on, and it was so pristine 
looking and it had such a beautiful appearance to it. It almost didn't look real. I mean, almost had this otherworldly <laughs> appearance in some ways. Um, but they're really very thoughtful people. They're almost like mind readers, at least the, the mama, especially because um, he's so in tune with the verities of the invisible world. So one of the things that they did before we had our talk, and they spoke Tyronian, so it had to be translated from Tyronian to Spanish into English. Um, <laughs> so it was a bit of a translation. But before they would even sit down and talk to us, um, they uh, found a spot on this large donor's property. They had maybe uh, 10 or 15 acres and invited us over to come over to this place that they had identified, which uh, had pretty good energy in, in the land and a beautiful stone there. And we, they asked us to place our thoughts in, our, in a leaf that they had folded, this mm. very large leaf. And it was folded like a funnel, you know, with a wide uh -huh. opening. And they asked us to put our thoughts into the leaf. Each one of us very carefully went up, you know, and contemplatively put our what we had been thinking. And then they took the leaf and they kind of huddled together, you know, and chatted about what they were seeing or feeling from all of our cumulative thoughts. And then we sat down and we had a three hour talk wow. with them, which mm. probably would have taken more like an hour if <laughs> yeah. we didn't have all the translations. Right. But, um, you know, they, they, I loved meeting them because everything they said just reminded me so much of my six-year-old self and everything I knew back then, you know, the trees are your mother and your father right. and, you know, all, all of these things and the earth is alive and, and, um, yeah, they're, they're just, they're brilliant people and, um, much of what they say and uh, can be proven scientifically and has been proven. And mm -hmm. one of the most amazing things, I just really fast say this, is that they were taken to meet a um, distinguished astronomer, astronomer in London. Mm -hmm. And he held up a huge star chart. And he was amazed when the mama pointed at this distant sun star and named it. And wow. they knew what it was and uh -huh. it was a star that you could not see with your naked eye oh so yeah so they're very hmm. glued in yeah when we were there we, we may actually made three trips to the lost city and um but well, we came in by helicopter yeah, which was not appreciated that's just what i was going to say <laughs> that uh, there was only two ways of get, getting to the lost city there's no roads there i don't know if there is now probably even maybe not now even uh you could walk for five days along a trail uh, through the mountains to get there or take a, a 45 minute to an hour helicopter ride, is, which is what what we did. And uh, so, you know, they're, they're a tribe that was never conquered by the conquistadors. And so they live outside of the uh, Western world's interpretation of reality. And uh, but you know, very close to nature. Very close to nature. And just think, one of the things that I was told from beings from another realm, I guess I'll put it, leave it at that, <laughs> okay. is that, um, you know, with using our explosive energy, like our motors and our uh. helicopters and our ship, that even just one of these machines on some of these other planets that are more in an astral kind of uh, condition mm -hmm. uh, would actually destroy the entire world. Jeez. God. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's why I wonder about this drone, for instance, on Mars. I mean, I, I understand why they're doing it to get pictures and whatever, but that's kind of weird. <laughs> Well, yeah, and, and of course, you know, people believe that Mars was once a beautiful planet mm -hmm. and was either in a war or had some natural disaster that, that yeah, uh, right. you know, occurred, took off the atmosphere and so forth. It could be our future. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Mm. Well, Catherine, it's, it's always so great to, to listen to you. I love yeah. I learned so much from you. What's your next project? Well, that's a good, actually, I was just said to my husband um, yesterday, I said, well, 
I know I should be marketing this book now, but I, I kind of want to start writing something else. Yeah. <laughs> I also, um, I am doing a lot of work um, here in California, uh, helping to protect native trees and to explain how we can work with forests, um, even in this fire situation, uh-huh. and how we, how biodiversity um, is so important, <clears throat> and it actually helps slow down fires if you have a biodiverse natural forest mm-hmm. uh, versus uh, thinning it. And a really simple explanation, anyone who's made a fire is you need wood and you need air, you need wind. Yeah. And if you thin a forest, boy, is that wind going to move faster through that forest? So, but if you have a nice, dense, pristine forest that has not been touched, that fire, you're still going to get the fire, but it's going to have a harder time. It's more muffled. Um, so, so it's I'm not trying about to... raking the forest floor like oh, Trump oh, used no. to say. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Although Bullwinkle Moose, I know, has been in touch with Donald Trump. And he had an extra rake. And he would love the Trump family to come out with Bullwinkle and to help rake some of these forest lands. Right. Uh, thank you very much, oh, Katriana. Oh, tell people where they can find your website and your book and... Yeah, I have. Um, sure. So the book is up at Amazon. It's coming out on the full moon, which is the 27th. Uh, but you can pre-order it at Amazon. It's called uh, Secrets of a Celtic Mystic, Sacred Earth Prophecy. And then my website is, uh, I have a new website. It's uh, catrionamcgregor. And it's O-R-G. Okay, great. All right. And I should say that Catriona and I... Uh, are not related, but we're part of the same tribe. The same clan. <laughs> we're part of the same ancient clan, and it's just been a delight. I'm just so glad that that we connected. And I remember my first message to you, Rob, through Facebook. I saw your name, and I got a chuckle. I saw Rob McGregor. I said, hey, McGregor. <laughs> kind of bold, you know. Yeah. Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical.